Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick and uh, thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the challenges people have uh, in looking at the area of conspiracy theories and actually understanding how conspiracy theories affect things in real life. We, we know from examples in Australia that have been reported that families have been affected, families have been broken up, but what other impacts do conspiracy theories have, such as Quinon? Uh, Polaris is an organisation in the United States that is involved in uh, a range of initiatives to try and curb uh, the incidence of human trafficking. I'm joined today by Anjana Rajan, who's one of the key staff members there, who's going to talk us through the impact of certain conspiracy theories on what they do on issues of human trafficking and how they're grappling with that now. Anjana, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Now, before we launch into looking at what Quanon had uh, caused, if you like, we can use that term, um, you to, to reflect on and change and how you, how you do things internally, what is Polaris? What does it do? And how long has it been around? Yeah, sure. So Polaris is the leading NGO in the United States that works to end human trafficking. And it was founded nearly 20 years ago. And our mission is to end sex and labor trafficking and to restore freedom to survivors. And our approach is to be survivor-centered, racial justice-focused, and technology-enabled. Our flagship product is operating the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline. And we've done so for the last 14 years. And to date, we've addressed more than 76,000 reports of sex and labor trafficking, and we've assisted more than 29,000 victims and survivors directly. And through our work, we've generated the single largest data set about human trafficking in the country. What the, what is the scale of the problem? If you can illustrate the scale of the problem right now, um, because it, if you're in a place like Australia where we don't see a lot of that going on um, the way you do in North America, uh, how would you explain it to people who aren't uh, close to it? Sure, yeah. I'll, let me zoom out and paint you a picture of what human trafficking is. So human trafficking is the illicit business of exploiting people for profit. And it's a $150 billion industry with 25 million victims worldwide. And that number is only going to grow unless something changes. When a lot of people think about human trafficking, they envision Liam Neeson from Taken. And that's not an accurate representation okay. of what the problem is. Um, it's actually the end result of a range of other persistent injustices and inequalities in our society and our economy. And so simply arresting traffickers, at least in the United States, will not itself end human trafficking because it's too complex and there's just too much out there. So to fundamentally reduce the amount of trafficking, we actually have to change the underlying systems that make trafficking possible in the first place. And the reason that's the case is because traffickers will pinpoint what people need and then they'll pretend to give it to them. So maybe it's a job or an apartment you know, maybe it's love or a sense of belonging. And so traffickers will target communities where the needs are greatest, right? So these are communities 
struggling with poverty and addiction and trauma. So at Polaris, we think that if we want to disarm the traffickers, we actually have to create a world where those needs are met by somebody other than the trafficker. And in the United States, at least, that means that we need to fix the broken systems that fail to meet those needs in the first place, right? So that's the foster care system. It means uh, having affordable housing. It means worker protections, education, immigration reform, fixing our criminal justice system, on and on. But it also means that we need to go deeper because preventing trafficking also means uh, facing the fallout of racism, sexism, and economic discrimination. And so that's why at Polaris, we see the fight against human trafficking as a fight for social justice, because it means repairing the damage done by these unjust and unequal policies that have over several generations led to greater needs in some communities over others. It's a it's a difficult situation to unpick, isn't it? Where you where you're looking at what you what you need to break apart, and then and rebuild in order to to get that uh, that situation um, fixed. Now, mm -hmm. before we go into Quanon, there's one there's one issue that I do want to touch on that is significant to. Uh, moving into the conspiracy theory analysis, and that is you've got counsellors at Polaris. Um, can you explain how the law works in the US when it comes to people who receive complaints and what they need to do with them? Sure. The way um, trafficking is legally defined is that a person is either recruited or transported or um, co or trafficked using what we call force, fraud, or coercion for the purposes of purposes of either commercial sex, which is considered sex trafficking, okay. or labor and services, which is considered labor trafficking. And it, that means that a counselor that, that gets information on that kind of activity must report to must report directly to a government authority. It depends. So the National Human Trafficking Hotline is a confidential survivor-centered resource to help victims and survivors in crisis. So when a survivor calls us, they can trust that the conversation is completely confidential and no information they disclose to us will be shared without their consent. The only exception to that rule is if the person is under 18 and is a minor, in which we are legally mandated reporters, which means we have to engage government authorities uh, to ensure that the child is safe. But other than that, we are very, feel very adamantly that this service must be um, survivor-centered and empower them to make the choice that's right for them. So when there are, when there are conspiracy theories that involve um, the alleged trafficking of children, it starts to complicate issues. Exactly. Tell me what happened when a particular Quanon theory began to emerge in 2020? Sure. Well, I'm going to start the story a little bit before that, because for Polaris, it uh, has started several years ago. Okay. Um, so when I joined the organization, um, I learned that in August of 2018, Polaris was a target of a coordinated disinformation campaign that accused us of being part of a fictitious child sex trafficking conspiracy supposedly run by the Clinton Foundation. And this outlandish conspiracy we discovered was driven by none other than QAnon, 
And that summer, QAnon followers doxed our senior staff and our board. They sent our hotline advocates death threats. And they led a cyber attack on our hotline, making it impossible for victims and survivors to get the help they needed. So as you can imagine, this was an incredibly harrowing and traumatizing experience for the organization. So when I heard about this after I joined, I was actually pretty terrified because I was worried that the attack on Polaris was a leading indicator of something bigger. Because at that time, QAnon was not yet part of the mainstream discourse. Um, But the patterns of QAnon followed a very similar disinformation playbook that we've seen before by other adversarial actors, right? It's the same way that ISIS used propaganda to recruit women into their fold. It's the same way Saudi Arabia launched a disinformation campaign to discredit their enemies. It's the same way the Russian Internet Research Agency subverted the 2016 U.S. election. And so when I the way I saw it in 2020, the COVID pandemic the murder of George Floyd, the upcoming presidential election, all was creating this perfect storm of societal tension. And it was really clear to me that we were barreling towards a pretty scary inflection point that would come to a head on election day on November 3rd. And what worried me the most was that QAnon was actually a triple threat, right? Not only does it undermine the anti-trafficking movement, but it could also threaten our democratic institutions and our elections. And worse, it could actually be a force multiplier for violent extremism. And this feeling was really deepened in July of 2020 when QAnon launched a sex trafficking conspiracy against Wayfair, the online furniture retailer. And even though Polaris wasn't the direct target of the attack, the deluge of dis and misinformation had devastating impacts on the anti-trafficking apparatus. What happened? So the Wayfair conspiracy was a particularly um, fascinating case study, if you can call it that, in how conspiracy theories affect legitimate efforts to fight human trafficking. And so we at Polaris, we analyze the amount of time we spent on nonsense calls about the Wayfair conspiracy, because in the moment um, when that conspiracy happened, it was one of the first times a QAnon conspiracy had had hit the mainstream and was going viral on Reddit. And um, when we looked at our data, we know that a typical trafficking case results in about 2.5 calls to the hotline. The Wayfair case alone was 536 calls, each of which contained no actionable information for us to use. (laughs) Now, what that translates to is that the time we spent responding to disinformation about Wayfair could have instead been spent responding to an additional 42 trafficking cases. Now, when you consider that in all of 2019, there were only 600 federal prosecutions of human trafficking, 42 is a very, very big number. And so Wayfair is just one conspiracy theory that we dealt with last summer. So when you compound that number with all the dis and misinformation we deal with, you can actually start to see how this has a very devastating impact on the anti-trafficking movement. In any organization, whether it be um, a non-government organization like yours, a retail organization, or or even a professional association, uh, whether it be accountants, lawyers, engineers, uh, people need to be told how to deal with uh, certain kinds of uh, calls or certain kinds of um, 
approaches from outside the organization. What adjustments did you need to make to, uh, to the way your people dealt with phone calls to enable them to cope with uh, uh, things that flowed on from the Wayfair conspiracy? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, because we knew that QAnon had been designated by the FBI as a domestic terrorist threat, we saw this bigger than just a comms problem. It was a security problem too. And so as soon as the Wayfair conspiracy happened, we decided to build a security strategy that could protect our organization against this threat as we corrected and countered disinformation. And the security strategy, simply put, said that in order to defend our mission, we need to also defend the reputation of our movement and our organization. We need to Mm -hmm. defend the operations of our hotline. We need to defend the physical safety of our people, and we need to defend the cybersecurity of our data. And in order to do all of that effectively, it has to be rooted in a systems change data-driven approach. And so we established a strategic partnership with the Sufan Group, which is a leading global security firm, and Limbic, a content science company. And together, we work together to build an AI model that can analyze disinformation on major social media platforms by looking at two key factors. So the first factor is the believability of the content. And the second factor is the foreign influence on that content. And by defining that threshold, we can start to quantify the risk of that disinformation going viral before it actually happens. And we were also able to integrate our hotline call volume into this model. So we could start seeing when these online behaviors converted into offline actions. And so by the time the election came around, we really shifted at Polaris from a defensive stance to an offensive posture. And we were not only able to predict the emerging QAnon narratives that were becoming prominent each week, but we were able to build a daily forecast of call volume to the hotline based on rising disinformation. And as a result, we are now in a position to prepare for that stochastic demand. And so that's been incredibly transformational for us. Mm-hmm. So once we got ourselves into this, you know, secure posture, we started to then translate our knowledge into advocacy work. And so that summer we launched an entire comms campaign focused on debunking rumors and myths about human trafficking. We helped um, bring together 90 different organizations in the anti-trafficking movement to sign an open letter denouncing QAnon, which is a big deal considering the human trafficking movement is a highly a diverse and fragmented movement. And we also called upon Republican House leadership to deny committee assignments to members who had openly promoted QAnon theories. And so these were the kinds of um, actions and advocacy work we were taking uh, in the wake of the, the Wayfair conspiracy leading up to the election. But as the year was ending, we started to see some disturbing patterns of how human trafficking disinformation was being used to radicalize susceptible audiences into violent extremist behaviors Mm -hmm. and correlating that with the status of the election. And so our team felt that we should share our findings and a paper to share with the new administration. Um, But little did we know that we were just, you know, days away from an insurrection. That that paper is interesting because you explore the, the range of issues that you've had to deal with. Uh, 
what are the practical things that you have, uh, if I can call them the sort of customer-facing staff, the staff that take calls, what are the things that um, you've had to take them through to grapple with it? Because the AI stuff helps build your intelligence base and enables you to see the landscape, you know, do a, I guess, an environmental scan on a daily basis. But what does what does the average counsellor uh, now need to keep in mind, given uh, you don't want to put people off? Yeah. Con contacting, you know, Polaris if there's a, uh, with a particular complaint. So what are the things that the customer uh, customer facing people need to keep in mind when they when they're sitting in a role with Polaris. Yeah, and I think this is probably an important takeaway for your audience is even though QAnon has weaponized our movement, the problem of human trafficking is still extremely real. And at Polaris, we have to continue to be survivor centered and mission focused while battling uh, malicious actors who who weaponize this human rights crisis uh, for, for malicious political gain. Um, and so when we think about, particularly as we were writing this paper, you know, what is it that we want people to understand? Um, it's that, it's a couple of things, right? So the first, the first key finding is that disinformation about human trafficking will serve as a gateway narrative that radicalizes susceptible audiences to condone and even perform acts of violence and terrorism. And this ultimately poses a threat to the national security of the United States. And you know, when we look at the insurrection, it serves as a really tragic case study because two of the women who died, Ashley Babbitt and Roseanne Boyland, they were both radicalized by human trafficking conspiracies. When we looked at Ashley Babbitt's social media, we can see that her radicalization patterns were rooted in child trafficking conspiracies for several years. But in contrast, Roseanne Boyland had been radicalized quite quickly, starting with the Wayfair conspiracy itself. And so the takeaway for us is that human trafficking narratives are an effective soft topic to quote unquote red pill susceptible audiences into these more violent or extremist ideologies. What's even more interesting is that women are more susceptible to being radicalized by these narratives. And we think it's because they are, it, is, it more likely appeals to their altruism to protect children. And so our data shows that women are 50% more likely than men to be classified as what we call QAnon fence-sitters, meaning they're more likely to fall for these narratives. And some of the previous counterterrorism research that we built our report on shows that this pattern of radicalizing women using narratives about children being harmed has been seen before, particularly with Salafi jihadist groups. And the thing that we are warning is that these narratives will be used again by other groups in the future as well. And so that kind of leads into the second thing that we tell our hotline advocates to keep an eye out, which is the believability of these narratives, right? So we, we ran a study um, through our partnership called the Believability Classification Survey. And we ran this survey between November 4th, 2020 and January 7th, 2021 with a nationally representative sample of nearly 16,000 respondents. And through the survey, we learned that 21% of U.S. adults self-identify as QAnon believers. When we asked the question, 
To what extent do you agree with this statement? I believe elites, politicians, and celebrities are involved in global pedophilia rings, and we need to hashtag save our children. 41% of US adults either agreed or strongly agreed, which is shocking. Now, by contrast, only 18% of US adults firmly rejected the idea that elites, politicians, and celebrities are involved in these global pedophilia rings, which means that the remaining 82% of the US population is at risk of being susceptible to this narrative. And what that implies is that anti-government violent extremists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, right-wing extremists, et cetera, who are not originally associated with QAnon, they're catching on to the allure of this narrative. And they're using child sex traffickings to trafficking conspiracies to radicalize followers and recruit new members. And this is concerning because co-opting disillusioned QAnon followers into these more violent groups could potentially expand the pool of individuals who are willing to commit acts of violence and terrorism. And what we've seen in the wake of um, the deplatforming efforts after the insurrection, that many of these groups are now migrating to encrypted chat platforms. So in January, um, a white supremacy channel on Telegram with almost 3,000 followers posted about how to use the narratives of elites being baby-eating pedophiles as a way to specifically recruit QAnon followers. So what this means is the human trafficking disinformation radicalization pattern is very effective and it will continue to be used agnostic of the extremist group or technology platform. But again, this doesn't make human trafficking any less real, which is why it's incredibly important for folks who are working in the space to listen to the experts about human trafficking to help understand and thread the needle between the nuance of what is real and what is disinformation. You've highlighted an important issue that would be perhaps need to expand on. Uh, the conspiracy theorists or the bad actors, if I can use that term, are weaponizing someone's emotional soft spot in order to pull them into a movement. How critical is uh, is uh, digital literacy? Um, that is improving the understanding of how social media is used in the community to sort of inoculating people from this sort of uh, ideological um, manipulation? Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question <laughs> that we're, we're trying to solve, at least in the United States. You know, I think there are many important questions that are being asked in the wake of the domestic terrorist attack on January 6th, including what role do social media companies have to play in moderating content on the internet? There's a lot of questions about what should domestic terrorism policy look like in the United States? And these are all really important questions. But the question that's equally important to me that I think we should be asking is, what brought thousands of everyday Americans to the Capitol on January 6th so that enough to convince them to turn against their own country? And I think that is a question that haunts me. It's, it's how, do we, how do we get there? And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the only way we can fight lies is, is amplifying the truth. And I think this is why civil society organizations like Polaris um, need to be at the table during these conversations, because the gateway narratives that brought people here started with disinformation about human trafficking. And I think the more we can build resilience against that by educating the general public about what human trafficking is, 
and having a government that is clearly doing taking efforts to fight it, the harder it will make it for these rogue actors to weaponize these narratives that are so compelling. Where are the, I guess, the other, the other element to education is what, what, what should policymakers do in this space? Um, have, what are the kinds of things that you'd like to see the Biden administration do more of in order to um, minimise the impact of um, these characters online that continue to perpetuate um, yeah, their, their own sort of mythology, conspiracies, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a few months ago that the Office of Domestic National Intelligence, uh, the, sorry, the Director of National Intelligence put out an unclassified report that said that the single largest threat to the homeland was racially and ethically motivated violent extremists and anti-government militia violent extremists. Yeah, And I think the way I see it is the, the most effective tactic is to have an effective government that is solving important problems for society. And so specifically as it focuses um, for human trafficking, the best way we can actually prevent what we saw on January 6th is to make sure that the government is taking steps to not only educate themselves about what human trafficking is, but to denounce disinformation that is happening within the walls of government themselves. And we see that in the United States that we have members of Congress who are QAnon adherents and are guilty of uh, spreading the, and pro propagating this hateful rhetoric. And so we need to make sure that all government officials, members of Congress are forcefully um, denouncing disinformation and elevating the truth about human trafficking as per the expertise of survivor-centered organizations. But moreover, we actually need to then solve the underlying systems that drive human trafficking, because ultimately human trafficking is a result of economic, uh, racial and gender inequities. And the, the more uh, governments can do to pass policies to um, increase housing stability, to decriminalize uh, vulnerable communities who are over-policed, to fix our immigration system, to create the economic social safety net, we are more likely to solve these problems that are ultimately creating on-ramps for folks um, to join violent extremist movements. I'm very mindful of the, the time, Angina. You've got, uh, you've probably got a range of things you want to do on a, what is it now, a Tuesday evening. But the there are people out there who might want to look up what Polaris does look up the research and look at uh, human trafficking further. Where can they learn more about the organization? Yeah, you can go to our website, which is www.polarisproject.org, and you can follow us on Twitter uh, to learn more about the work that we're doing. Angela, thank you so much for joining me uh, for this particular uh, podcast, and it's been enlightening to hear how you've tried to deal with something that's particularly challenging in the in the US environment. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Tom, for having me. Absolute pleasure.